0: Welcome to the Writer Experience Podcast, presented by FlickeringMyth.com. I'm your host, Court Dunn. Join us as we talk to writers about their work, their process, and what it means to be a writer. Welcome to the Writer Experience Podcast. Today's guest is Vivian Lee. Vivian is the writer of Netflix's Cowboy Bebop. Lost in Space, and The Dark Crystal, Age of Resistance. Those are some really cool shows, Vivian. (laughs) Thank you. We're excited to have you on the show today.
1: I'm very excited to be here. Thank you so much for the invite.
0: Are you as excited about working on those shows as we are to have you on the show?
1: I am 100% excited. What excites me is that The Dark Crystal, Age of Resistance, I was pregnant when um, I started that, and my son will be two years old when it wow. will finally be on Netflix. So I've been on and it was the same with Lost in Space and now with Cowboy Bebop. I've been on three shows that I tell people, "Hey guys, I'm like a big deal. I'm super cool. People don't know about it and mm-hmm. haven't heard about it and won't hear about it for another 2 years." So finally things are starting to come around and it's very exciting to be on a project where finally people can watch.
0: And <laughs> in Lost in like Space is mm-hmm. out, obviously, and Lost
1: in Space is out. Yes.
0: And The Dark Crystal is not out yet, correct? Unless I'm crazy? Correct. I okay. do
1: believe it drops on Netflix August 30th of this year.
0: That's coming up soon.
1: I know. It's very exciting.
0: Very exciting. And then obviously Cowboy Bebop is the third there, and that's not coming out for yep. a little while.
1: I don't think till 2020. Okay. Yeah.
0: So, well, we'll have to wait for that one. Um, I'm excited to talk to you about all of these shows. Obviously, I know you can't tell us everything about every single one, but we'll kind of mm-hmm. take it show by show. Before we do, tell us about your location. My first question is usually, where are you in the world?
1: I am currently in Los Angeles, which is sort of gloomy right now, in an area called Los Feliz, which is very hipster. And Like I said before, I am a wannabe hipster, but no, I'm not. Um, So I I like to live in the place that
0: has cool people. You are in the West Coast. Did you grow up there? Did you move there to become a TV writer? Tell us about your origin story.
1: I am originally from a small town in Colorado called Loveland, Colorado. Because it's a small town, I went to school there. My parents, um, we were the only uh, Chinese people in my town. So as you can see, that's a very small town. And kind of grew up in that um, typical Chinese-American family with a restaurant. We were the only people that had a Chinese restaurant in this small town. Went to high school, went to college. My first two years of college, I went to Indiana University. Just to get out of Colorado, and then I transferred back to University of Colorado in Boulder. So I just sort of slowly made my way out to the West Coast, knowing that I wanted to be in entertainment. I had to choose between: did I want to be in entertainment living in New York, or living in California? And because I have cousins, and my brother was going to USC at the time, I decided it was a safer, secure bet for me to come West Coast as opposed to East Coast. So when you talk about the East Coast, I have this like. This longing and this ache of, oh, what if I would have been and lived my life in New York? So I still dream of that, of getting a show and just moving for six months to the East Coast.
0: What are the pros and cons uh, to New York and L.A.?
1: I think, and this is you know me speaking from no experience of New York, when I hear writers who've done work in New York, you know, obviously there are shows that shoot in New York with a writer's room in New York, it sounds very exciting. You know, you walk down the street and there's always something to do. And, you know, you you hop on the subway and you go here on the weekends. You just you just walk everywhere. And it's just very exciting. And I don't know, there's something very romantic about that. In L.A., it's the same thing. But it just I think, you know, it's harder to like it's not really a walkable town. I think that's something that I kind of miss and crave and kind of desire is to be able to just walk out there and just explore the day and just, you know, see where the day takes you as opposed to L.A you explore the day and then the cut to an hour and the car trying to drive 20 miles, you know? So it's a little frustrating.
0: I briefly described you as a TV writer and listed some of mm-hmm. your, you know, example works. How do you describe yourself when you're at one of those fancy LA industry parties and someone says, what do you do? How do you answer that question?
1: I, I mean, pretty much what you said. I mean, most people here would, if I just went, oh, I am a, I'm a screenwriter, I'm a writer for tele- on television, my title at this point is I'm a producer-level title, which is just a certain you know, level of writer. But yeah, I'm a, just a good old-fashioned television writer.
0: Can you walk us through those levels for those who aren't familiar, producer and writer yeah. and obviously the showrunner? Um,
1: yeah. Uh, you know, When you get your first writing gig on a television show, you start off as a staff writer. So go staff writer, story editor, executive story editor, producer, co-producer. After that, it's a little bit fuzzy to me. I think it's like supervising producer, consulting producer, and then like executive producer. I think that's the top. So I'm like right in that middle spot right now, hoping to one day jump to the higher tier.
0: <laughs> and are you that same role for all three of those shows that we referenced?
1: So the first year of Lost in Space, I came in as an executive story editor, and so my second year on Lost in Space. So, so I just to backtrack. Lost in Space. I did Lost in Space first, and then I did Dark Crystal. Went back to Lost in Space, then did Cowboy Bebop. So my first uh, season, Lost in Space, I was an executive story editor. When I got to Dark Crystal, I got a bump. I think I was officially a co-producer level. Then. When I went back to Lost in Space, co-producer, then now that I'm on Cowboy Bebop, I think I'm an official producer level. So it's like a weird... Every show you go on, hopefully you get a bump up. Hopefully your quote gets a little higher. Hopefully your um, agents or representative can be like, hey, she's done this much X amount of TV. She deserves a title bump. So So now that I'm going to come back for... uh, We wrapped season two of Lost in Space. When I come back for season three of Lost in Space, Hopefully, I will be. I guess I'll be a producer level. Yeah. So I've I've jumped three levels since first season of
0: Lost in Space. You're working for or have worked on three Netflix shows. Yep. What's the correlation between that? Is it because you worked on one and then you're in that world, that network? So then you you know the same yeah. are all the same people working on them. How does that work?
1: So my first show was Lost in Space, and it was a great experience. And um, Netflix has been very very good to me. I think they value talent and they if they hear good things about you and um especially now i think netflix is really trying to push the what they call the the four quadrant which is very family friendly but action oriented shows much like you know in the vein of like jurassic park and Indiana jones so they know that oh vivian lee you know she did what she needed to do in lost in space we trust her we understand her voice let's see if she'd be interested in the dark crystal oh that's great. She did great in Dark Crystal. You know what? Um, again, we trust her. She has a great reputation of turning in scripts on time, getting along with showrunners. You know, let's bring her back to Cowboy Bebop. So they've been very good about giving me heads up of, hey, we don't want to lose you. Can we just roll you into the next show a next show and next show? So I've been very, very lucky that they have been that good to me.
0: Would you mind if we kind of time travel through your various shows and we'll try to kind of piece together your involvement in the process for Lost in Space specifically? You've been a writer on a show before that.
1: I have. I was on a show, actually two shows before. My first sh- staffing show was a show called Chaos, which was on CBS. It was a mid season replacement show, which means it was like a, a summer show. We wrote 13 episodes. We got canceled by episode three. And it was a, like I said, it was my first show. I was a staff writer. I was very excited. And then when that show ended, I uh, because it's midseason and it was sort of out of by the time we got canceled uh, shows weren't staffing up so I kind of missed the the getting another job rotation so I ended up being another I had to go back to being an assistant for a while and then the show after that was a show called Stitchers which was at that time ABC Family now Freeform show was on that show for two seasons and then you know got on Lost in Space and what's interesting about Lost in Space is um never really considered myself a genre writer and lost in space obviously is a huge genre show sci-fi fantasy all that jazz and i'm i don't i'm not a sci-fi writer i had wrote a spec and my agents had said you know they're um i'm gonna submit you for lost in space and i went well that's crazy pants because i don't know anything about lost in space you know in my head it's you know that show from the 50s and then the movie, which I actually enjoyed. Some people didn't, but I actually enjoyed it. And I was like, I don't think I'm right for this show at all. She's like, well, I'm submitting you anyway mm-hmm. because the show is, which is great. like my, my, my agent was great. She was fantastic. She says, I'm submitting you anyway because just read the script. It is a reboot. It is more family oriented. It's more character driven. And because you're a character writer, I think you'd be great on it. And I read the script and I was like, Jesus, it's... um. It was one of the best written pilots I ever read because it read like a feature. And I remember reading it and I went, holy cow, Like, if this is a real thing, I would love to be part of it. But again, I felt very inadequate going into it because like I said, you guys had Carrie Drake on the show and, and she's um the one of the fellow writers in the room. And Carrie Drake is, is brilliant when it comes to sci-fi and gag and fantasy. This was all her world. I didn't know anything about that. So again, I felt very inadequate going in. She's like, they want to meet you. They love your script. And I went, are you sure? I, I feel like I'm, if I go in there, I'll be set up to fail. And what my agent said to me, which I, to this day, credited her for changing my view of, of writing. She said, in that Lost in Space room, they're going to have a writer who knows about science fiction. They're going to hire a writer who knows about GAC, you know, technical stuff. They're going to need a writer who can write characters and family, and you write characters and family. So shut up, and <laughs> go to the meeting, <laughs> talk about what you know, and see how it goes. And it was the most fabulous meeting. It was exactly what she said. It was they, to their credit, Zach Estron, who's the showrunner, and the two writers who wrote the script, Matt and Burke, they, we just had a conversation about characters. I don't remember ever talking about the mythology of the show or, you know, planets and stuff like that. It was just about, hey, so where do you think a character like Judy would go? Or... You know, Maureen and John—they are—they are uh, a are husband and wife who have a falling out, but now they have to kind of um, rally together to to save their family. You know, we talked about in those terms, and in those terms, I was very comfortable with, and then got on that show, and it was—it's an absolute delight. I love love working on Lost in Space, and I feel very honored to be part of a show that, again, wasn't even in my in my line of sight, and I just feel so lucky that I'm now a part of something that not only do I can contribute but I learn every day when I'm in that room about world building and mythology and again fantasy stuff that I was never privy to or had access to so it's great
0: a lot of people talk about the pitch bringing your own idea to a studio or saying this is my show in this case as a writer who's applying to be so to speak on the show you had like a like an interview it was just like a yeah. was it how formal was it how similar to like a nine-to-five job, so to speak?
1: You know, it's similar in the sense of, you know, you get the butterflies, you want to put your best foot forward, you get all dolled up or not. Some writers like to go in, you know, wearing jeans and a t-shirt and, you know, you walk into a, uh, I think at the time it was a conference room, I believe, at Legendary. So it was, I had met with all three of them at the same time, Zach Estrin, Matt Sazma, and, and Burke. And you know, it was very intimidating, but it was very much like in an interview process, usually the executive producers have already read your, your sample. And so usually it's a, we love your sample. These are the things that we, that resonated with us based on your writing. Um, and you, you know, you feel great about it for that split second. And then they talk about, okay, these are the things we're looking for. Have you read our script? What do you think? And it's just a, it's usually just a very casual conversation about you know, writers talking about writing. How do you approach a story? What's your background? Where are you from? The same questions you guys are asking me now is the same questions they ask me in the room. It's where are you from? Oh, tell us about your story. And then like, you know, I'm an Asian American girl who grew up in Colorado. I, you know, uh, was a latchkey kid. I watched, you know, television all the time. I mean, it's like, it's the same, it's the same interview process. It's never about I mean, obviously, I've had um, what my friend calls a Joe job. I've had many Joe jobs where you go in and you just give them a resume and they tell you like, oh, what's your worst experience or what's your best experience? It's not about that. It's literally about a showrunner's job is to create a room of diverse voices, but that you can stand hanging out for 10 hours a day, six hours a day. You know, you're literally in a small cramped room and you have to look across this person and you have to be like, okay, these personalities are all going to gel. They might come from different backgrounds. They might have different ways of approaching the story. But I think I, can, I think I can play with them for six hours a day, nine hours a day, 10 hours a day. And that's really what it was. It was a conversation with these three executive producers and seeing if we got along, if, we, if I didn't irritate them, if they didn't irritate me. And just kind of, it's just talking about stories and if our personalities matches or not. And that's pretty much what these interviews are.
0: Walk us through walking through the door of the first day and getting to know those other people, those other voices in the writers' room, and what voice slash personality do you end up being?
1: Specifically to Lost in Space,
0: yeah, I guess um, in general as well.
1: It's like um, it's going to school for the first time. You know, you're you're the it's the new school gear. You walk in and you sometimes you ask if you can read their sample beforehand. Sometimes you just go in there just blind and you, you know, you do the, it's the first day of college. You shake hands, you go, oh, where's my office? You know, you play that whole game. And that first day is just about, we do work, obviously we do work, but it is about, it's the same conversation. Where are you from? Oh, wow, that's great. Oh, you know, so-and-so, I know so-and-so. And it's just about sussing each other out and being super nervous because you want to, especially the Lost in Space, I think Lost in Space was the first room that when I walked in, I went, holy crap, like, all these writers were just on point. You know, like like I said, I love Carrie. Carrie's brilliant when it comes to world building and sci-fi stuff. You know, we had another writer, Catherine Collins. She's great with character. She's so passionate when she pitches in the room. And you have all these people who, who you suddenly are, you know, on a big conference room table and you just watch them. I'm sure they're all nervous that first day, but it never felt like it. It felt like they knew what they were doing. and I was the one that was trying to keep up or play it cool. And and so that's usually that first day is you just kind of talk and you kind of realize, oh, we all love the script. What well, we love about the script, you know, specifically for Lost in Space. Matt, Burke and Zach were obviously it was Matt and Burke because this is their their baby. They had a very clear vision of what the first season was like. So when we walked in there, they pretty much had, maybe not the beats of each story, but definitely like, we wanted to do, uh, they were like, oh, we want to do a um, Stand By Me episode. You know, we, we, we talk in terms of movie terms. We like to do a kid's Stand By Me episode. And this is specifically the first season. We want to do the E.T. episode. We want to do the Old Yeller episode. Like, there were these kind of terms. And so that first That first day was just talking about, oh, what does that mean? Like an old dealer episode. Well, you know, spoiler alert for season one, we ended up having to kill the robot, you know? And so like, those are the things that we talk about in like the broad, broad, broad terms while eating lunch and getting to know each other. Oh, you have a family? I have a family. Oh, great. Oh, you used to work on the show? I know that person on the show. So it's a very, like I said, that first week is very casual with work. And then after that week, it's just, it's just work.
0: (laughs) And then you're breaking multiple episodes at a time, correct? I imagine you'd actually, before that, you'd be working on the season arcs and kind of the higher level stuff.
1: um, Specifically for Lost in Space, Lost in Space was my first Netflix experience. And up until then, everything I had worked on was like a network, network shows or, or in the sense of we got maybe a month or two ahead before production starts. So you get maybe like a month or two at the most to kind of talk about broad beats and characters before production starts. And then you just start churning out scripts as fast as you can.
0: Is it one writer per script or is it kind of a collaboration?
1: Usually it's one. I mean, I've heard it's different when it comes to comedy half hours, but usually for drama, it is one writer per script, or you get paired up with somebody else. Sometimes like when I was a staff writer, I was a newbie writer, you know, you get paired up with someone who's more senior. So you you know, get a co-write something, you know, I think that's pretty common. But yeah, usually it's just one writer per, per script. And uh, sometimes you don't even know what episode you have until you're done breaking that episode. So it's like, you know, episode one, we all break it as a unit. And then the show and write goes, Vivian, I think you're going to write that episode. Which is a great way because then everyone has to pay attention. <laughs> but um, yeah, it was just one of those. So Netflix has a great which I love the model, where we literally are there six months before production starts. And six months for someone who is like me, who loves to write about character and to really start from character, it was just a great, it was a great way to be like that first month we were like, okay, so let's do character arts. Like forget about all the plot devices. Where do you want the characters to be? Who is Judy? Who is Maureen? Who is John? Like we would just talk about in those broad terms. And then we kind of like had a chart that we kind of laid out where and Lost in Space was a really unique experience where the writers, the, the executive producers, Matt and Burke, really saw it because their feature writers, saw it as a feature that, you know, the first, there'll be like an act one, act two, act three, and we would, we would plot out character's arc in those terms. Act one, you know, Judy has a chip on her shoulder. What is going on with her and John? Why can't she accept him, you know, for being there? What's going on with him? Act two, okay. Things are happening. They're starting to. There's, you know, ice has melted between them. They're starting to kind of understand each other by Act Three. Yep, they're a family. They love each other. That kind of thing. Yeah. So Lost in Space was very, very character driven, that heavy. And then once we kind of plot out the character arcs, that's when we would then go on the other whiteboard and be like, okay, so we have ten episodes. Where do these beats lie? Like, if Judy's, and I specifically say Judy because I, I have an affinity towards Judy's character. Where does she finally? decide to make peace with her dad okay well it can't be in act one the first three episodes of the seasons has to be more towards the middle to the end of the season so we talk again in those kind of terms and we just we just kind of blue sky those and then there was a i don't remember what writers said this but the idea of writing is kind of like you're ironing a shirt or you just kind of keep ironing it over and over to get the wrinkles out right that's interesting what we, would do. we would and this was again It was a great experience because we, this was the first show that I felt that we as a collective would not move on until we all agreed this is where we're going without any sort of ego, without any sort of like, oh, I'm just being a brat just because I just was having a bad day. So I'm just going to poke holes on things. It never came from that place. It always came from, okay, we agreed that Penny was going to do this. Like we always agreed Penny was going to do X, Y, and Z day one by day 10. We're like, you know, remember how we said Penny was going to act this way? I don't think that's right. You guys, like I don't, now that we've talked about other characters, we would be like, okay, well, if that's the case, let's go back and let's iron that shirt again. There's still that kink that we need to iron out. All right. So it was a lot of, again, because we had six months to really kind of be able to go back and forth and back and forth and iron that shirt until it was crisp and clean and completely, you know, it looks like completely wrinkleless. Then we'd be like, yep, we're done with that. We're done with the episode one. Great. Catherine, this is your script or whatever. So it was a very, it was a very collaborative process and we all felt, we all took ownership from each episode. So uh, forgive me if there are moments where you ask me specific questions about my episode, <laughs> I don't remember. Because like of course. we all, like I just, every episode was this, there's a moments where we like, oh, I remember when I pitched that or I remember when someone else pitched that. Oh, I remember we all came up with that idea. So at this point, I don't know whose episode is which episode.
0: That sounds like a very healthy writers' room. The fact that you're kind of all working together—it
1: was very. It was the most, and actually, to be honest, like all the Netflix shows that I've been on have all been like that, and it's crazy pants because you know you hear, and I—I know writers who've been on, you know, this for your audience. There are shows out there that do not work this way, that are very toxic, that are, and by toxic, I mean does not work well, that the leadership tends to be a little bit less clear in what he or she wants. Or they feel pressured from the network or the studio to change their vision and they get angry and so they kind of attack their writers and it becomes this whole, like, whole thing. For whatever reason, and I don't know if it's because, again, Netflix, we don't shoot till six months after the scripts are done. None of the three shows I worked on have ever felt any toxicity, never felt like, oh crap, we failed our leaders or the leader took out on us or suddenly, it, it just never, it, we never, or got notes that came out of nowhere. We never felt that way. We always felt free to express ourselves and we felt free to like, poke holes because we are all part of, like we, we want this to be good, you know? So it was great. It was the most healthiest. The last three shows I've been on and are all gold. They're just unicorn shows.
0: What's your favorite film of all time? It might be a sophisticated classic, a childhood favourite or an enjoyable pile of trash you just can't help but watch over and over again. The Pick of the Flicks podcast, hosted by me, Tom Beasley, is all about celebrating people's favourite movies in whatever form they take. Each week I interview a different guest about their chosen favourite, whether I agree with their choice or think they're as mad as one of Tom Hardy's accents. So tune in to Pick of the Flicks every week on the Flickering Myth podcast network and subscribe with your podcast app of choice. Maybe your favourite film will be next. Hi, I'm George. And I'm Sam. And we're from the That's a Classic podcast on the Flicker and Myth Network. We both bring three films each from a certain genre, and we battle it out to find out which is the ultimate classic. So you can listen to us on Flickr and Myth, iTunes or Spotify. Check out what classic we choose every week. You said that each writer in a writer's room has their thing, you know, whether that's knowledge of uh, world building or whether in your case, you said character development and you mentioned familial uh, side of things. Do you think that those uh, qualities for you were the same for all three shows? You know, you mentioned Lost in Space, but for the Dark Crystal, also as you work on Cowboy Bebop, do you see those same themes repeating? Are you the same person? Are you changing?
1: I see them repeating in a, in a good way because they're Lost in Space. On the surface, it's about family, you know, and obviously, you all know that. A dark crystal age of resistance is about, I think I can say that, is about it's coming of age story of young people who are obviously in families of their own starting to realize that their benevolent leaders aren't as benevolent as they thought they were, you know, coming of age story of suddenly they have to become adults and step up, and that might mean. Going against what their parents have told them, going against their siblings who say don't rock the boat, and so in that in that sense, Star Crystal is a hundred percent about family too. Cowboy Bebop, again, another show that I was like, I don't <laughs> think I'm right for. I had never seen an episode of Cowboy Bebop. I hadn't even heard about it. This is how just completely like uncool I am. But again, when I met with uh, Chris Yost, who is the um, who wrote the pilot and is like is our fearless leader in this. He talked about Cowboy Bebop in the terms of they were a family. They weren't blood family, but they are a bunch of, they're just a ragtag family who have been isolated or who have been rejected or don't have any memory and they suddenly band together. They need each other. That is a family unit. And when he spoke in terms like that, I went, oh, I get why. I wrote something that is very family driven as a, as a sample that he read it and went, oh, I get it. She understands what it means To be a family, she understands the dynamic. And so, again, yes, every show that I've been on has family themes, but in like different, I guess, um, different uh, surface, you know, family with friends, family with blood family, family where you don't even like each other, but you just happen to be working together at that second. So, yeah, it's very um, just different versions of family.
0: You mentioned briefly that coming on to Cowboy Bebop, and we can go back and forth now between the two shows. You hadn't watched it going into the show. Did you sit down and do like a binge? And what was that experience like? Because as myself and many others are huge fans of Cowboy Bebop and would yeah, love to relive a, a watching that. Right? <laughs> yeah. Like what was that like watching it for the first time? And I assume you watched the movie as well.
1: I watched first the movie. Of, I watched yeah. it at all. So mm-hmm. I obviously, when I got the interview, they're like, you need to watch Cowboy Bebop. I'm like, okay. And so I binged watched it. And it's so, I remember when I first watched it, I went, Oh, I get it. There's a fun jazziness about it. Mm-hmm. Like I, I when they pitched it to me, I was just like, I don't understand what this is. And I watched it. And I'm like, Oh, I understand it. I get why this is a thing. Like it's, it, it's so cool. It's, it's stylistically, it's great. The music, great. The characters have ache. It's just a, such a unique property with still being clever and still being kind of um hyper reality, but we when I watched it, I'm like, oh, there's a little bit of um noir in it. It's a little bit of Quentin Tarantino. It's a little bit of, oh, there's a Western. There's like and I suddenly saw the potential of what a live action version of that would be. You know, and as someone who was not familiar with the Cowboy Bebop property, now that after I had watched it and watched the movie, I suddenly went and went, Yep, I might not have been a fan before, but I'm a hundred percent fan now. And I might be late to the game. So when we were in the Cowboy Beaver Room, because everything was so fresh and new, I think I felt that I got nervous if we decided to veer a little left or a little, a little right, because I had just become a fan. So I was like, are we sure we can do this? They're like, oh no, it's still the same. Or, oh yeah, we're definitely doing this. And so when there's like Easter eggs, I started getting all excited. I'm like, oh, oh yeah, I remember that scene. Oh, we're gonna do that? Oh, that's great. So it became a, it was really fun to, I had just watched the series and just watched the movie. And then the next day, I wasn't on a show that had to have the responsibility of adapting it to a, not only to fans of the show, but hopefully a new audience, you know, and how to, how to elevate, uh, not elevate, but it's a, it's a different medium, obviously live action. And it was just very thrilling and exciting. And I felt such a, a sense of responsibility and did not want to, I think that show more than Dark Crystal or Lost in Space, we were very vocal in the room about making sure that the audience didn't feel like we can't disrespect it like we really talked about are the fans of the show going to like what we're doing are the fans going like what we're how we're casting it like it was a it was a very i would say 20 percent of the way we talk about stories it was always a little bit of but what are the fans are going to say because they are the ones who kept the show alive for all these years, you know, and we didn't want to ignore that or dismiss that. So it was a very, um, we all took a very great care and, um, understanding that this was a property that people are going to be super excited about. And if we ruined it, then we did not do our job. Right. And I think right. would feel so
0: bad. <laughs> you mentioned, uh, that you wanted to, You mentioned uh, being a showrunner as one of those examples, and we walked through your journey about how you're here. What are those next steps?
1: As a showrunner? Yeah, um, as a
0: showrunner or kind of your trajectory.
1: Well, currently I am um, developing a couple of pitches. One is an original idea of mine, and one that a um, production company has an idea they, they came across. They pitched to me and went, is this something you're interested in? And I'm like, yeah. So I've been working on two right now. I think that's what it comes down to is when you're a showrunner, there, there's, there's two versions of showrunners you can be. You can be a showrunner creator. That is the version I want to go. I want to be a person that creates a show, whether it is from using a known IP or something that's original that I you know develop a, a pitch for and pitches the idea of what that series is like, that first episode, who are the characters, what does season one, season two, season three look like? Once you're done with all that kind of legwork, you go to a production company, you go to a studio, and you, it's exactly what it sounds like. You go and pitch. You go to a room with one, two, five people, and you tell them a story. Hi, my name is Vivian Lee. This is the story that I think would be kind of interesting on your network. And you pitch them. You pitch them the characters. You pitch them what the first episode is. You pitch them what the story arcs. And then they go, great, I think that we have something here can you maybe tweak this in here? Or we were looking for this type of story and you can either tweak it to that version or you go, you know what? I really like this version. And then they give you money <laughs> and they let you, you know, make a, make a pilot episode and see that, see that um, sticks. There's versions of showrunners who are creators, who there are a lot of people um, because there's so much television right now. There are a lot of people who, are creators who create a television show, but they've never ran a show before. You know, that's, that's actually the version that I'm gonna end up being, is the version of, I'm gonna create a show because I've never actually run a show before, they're probably going to assign or find a showrunner for me. Someone who knows the nitty gritty, the production, budget, that I will work in tandem with, that will not only help guide me, but essentially mentor me. That's most likely what's gonna happen in my case. Because again, I don't really have that. Um, and there are there are showrunners out there, professional showrunners out there, that that's what they do is they, they're they the ones who have so much experience, set experience, editing experience, like I said, budget, that a studio would be like, hey, so-and-so, we got this great writer right now, has a great idea for a TV show. She just unfortunately does not have the experience you have. Would you mind coming on board? So there's two versions of showrunners. Like I said, I want to be the showrunner creator. I think the first show that I ever I say this as a big pie in the sky. The first show that I'll, if I ever create, I'll probably be assigned a showrunner. And then the second, third one, when I kind of figure out what's going on, then I will be the showrunner. I won't need to have someone, you know, helping me along.
0: So you have the roadmap to the future. Let's say that for those listeners out my, there who are my big dream future, <laughs> and I love it for those who are out there who don't know quite where to start. We always ask that. How do you get your foot in the door question? What would you say to those writers out there who are like, how the heck do I get where Vivian Lee is at?
1: Very daunting. Um, just from my own personal experience, like I said, I'm from Colorado. That's very far away from LA. How was I going to get there? I did internships. I, um, this was back when NBC had their NBC page program. And I just kind of stumbled upon it online and went, Oh, if I applied to the NBC page program in Burbank, California that gives me an excuse to go to LA. You know, I can work, I can be around people in the industry. I think the my husband's a writer, he came from in a different way. But for my trajectory it was, you know, you have in order to be in this business, you have to surround yourself. You literally have to just all your friends have to be in this business. You have to become an assistant. You have to, you know, be a PA. I think you just kinda that's again, that's how I I rose the ranks where I became a PA and then a writer assistant and a script coordinator for years. And I was just surrounded by writers. I was surrounded by executive producers and stuff. And I would also suggest that when you get those PA jobs and assistant jobs, that you, not in a cocky sort of way, but make your intentions known. You know, you, when you are introduced to people, I think a lot of people, and this is something that I, I look back in my own life, when people go, oh, what do you want to do? And you just kind of go, oh, I'm a, I'm a PA. I, I, I don't know yet. I knew what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a writer. But I couldn't say it because it felt so... It was like as if I told someone, oh, I'm in a band. Oh, really? Where do you play? Oh, I play in my a parents' garage. It felt like it wasn't a real thing, that people would laugh. But you have to, if you want to be a writer, you have to identify yourself vocally as a writer. Oh, I'm a PA on a, on a reality show, but um, I'm working on a script right now. I'm, I'm I really want to be on a scripted show, and that's what I did. I suddenly started changing the way I introduced myself, the way I talked, oh, because I was in reality shows as a PA, forever, and much like anything else in any other business, once you're in a specific genre or specific type of show, that's what you're stuck in, so I was on reality shows for like five years, and it's only people I knew were reality, and I suddenly was like, I can't do this, this is not what I came to LA to be, so I started being like, oh, um yeah, I'm a rally show. Oh, do you want to be a rally producer? No, I want to be in scripted television. I want to be in scripted television. I want to be in scripted television. And you say that long enough, people in this industry, as much as people diss LA being cold and harsh and a bunch of people trying to rip your soul apart, there are a lot of good people out there too. There are a lot of people that will remember what a great worker you are, how hard, how you walked in with a smile on your face and you. You know, you were handed something to go deliver at three o'clock in the morning and you did it without complaint. And they go, oh, what do you want to do? I want to be a writer. They will remember that because cut to, and this is exactly what happened to me, cut to, you know, a year later being on a reality show, someone, someone, a friend of mine that had worked with as a PA went, you know, there's a show called, this is going to date me, American Dreams on NBC. It's a scripted show. It's season three, I think they were going to do one more season. Do you want to be a PA on that show? And I went, absolutely. And it's someone just because simply I just said, I want to be on scripted television. So when you're starting off, just be cognizant of telling people what you want, because there are people out there who will listen. And if they can help you, they'll remember you and be like, oh, so-and-so wanted to be a writer. You know, I have a writer friend. Do you want to meet for coffee? Oh, you said you wanted to be a writer? Oh, you know, my uncle actually, um, runs modern family. You want to go meet him? Like those things will happen. But until you actually acknowledge that as your own identity, no one else is going to, no one else is going to say that for you. So that's my biggest thing. Love it. Make sense? <laughs> <laughs>
0: it. Makes a lot of sense. The next question is, do you want to switch over to some more fun, what we call a series of seemingly random questions? Let's do it. Do you want to try it? All right, here we go. This question was actually proposed by. Um, a couple writers of animated TV who we featured a couple weeks ago, Joshua Pruitt, Scott Peterson. We always ask our guests to provide a question to other guests. And their suggestion was what motivates you to keep writing every day? Like what's going through your mind every day when you're trying to kind of get through it?
1: Um, I think it changed. It changes, you know, it changed when I was 20 and now I'm, you know, not 20 <laughs> currently. I am a mother. I am a wife. I am a mother of a one year old. We live in a two bedroom apartment. Daycare, school is very expensive. I know this sounds really like uninspiring, but it's one of those motivations where there are days where I'm like, I'm so tired. You know, the kid's not sleeping through the night. I have to. Someone once told me that being a writer means that you have homework for the rest of your life, which I always thought was really sad and interesting. But ultimately, yeah, it's like you. In this stage in my life, I don't have any other skills. When you're 20, you're like, this is my dream. I want to do this. And now that I'm finally there, what motivates me is this whole thing could just go away in an instant if I don't do my homework. You know, the thing that I've been finally get to a point where I'm working on this amazing, awesome Netflix show. it could just I could just lose it just like that because I decided, you know what, meh. I'm not gonna write today, or meh, I'm not gonna write a year. I don't have anything, I have my old samples, they can just hire me off of that. No, there are new writers, new brilliant writers who come into the business every frickin' minute of my life and I have to be like, okay, I am a working mom. There's every excuse why I would just leave this business. It's too hard, I don't have the energy. No, I got here. This is what I want to do. That's what Motus made me is fear. I don't want to lose what I have. I'm so close. So close. I just got to keep going. Fear. That's a terrible motivation. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Not at all.
1: The idea that I don't want to be an assistant anymore. I'm so close. I'm so close.
0: I love it. Uh, the next question is also was suggested by a guest, Alan Dean Foster, the writer of Splinter of the Mind's Eye, the original sequel to Star Wars. Comfort foods can sometimes help combat writer's block. Is there a particular comfort food that maybe you uh, might have had during the loss
1: in space or, you know, I any of these like writer's rooms? Gummy bears. Gummy bears are good gummy to bears. gnaw on. Um, pretzel chips and cheddar cheese sticks are great. I tend to, I'm a big foodaholic. I love eating food for whatever reason when I write. Cannot eat. I cannot eat. So it has to be salty, sweet snacks that's in my vicinity. But yeah, like pretzel chips, cheddar cheese, and gummy bears. The Harbors ones, not those crappy generic ones. It has to be the Harbourers, gummy bears.
0: Next question: If you could bring any writer to any fast food restaurant, which would you choose and why?
1: Does it have to be a writer?
0: It doesn't have now, to. I be. know
1: this is a weird question for me to ask, um, because I, I've, I've told you how my you know my my dream is I want to become someone who. The Shonda Ryans, the Ryan Murphys, the Vince Gilligan, who are producer writers, you know, writers who produce things. This is a weird thing for me because I was thinking about this question. I would love to meet and take Lucille Ball out for Arby's, And it's a weird thing. She, Lucille Ball was not a writer, but she is a storyteller. She was the first female that ran a production company. She was the first female who, the one, the story that got me was that. On her riding staff, she had a female rider who was pregnant and went to her and went, you know, this sucks. I'm going to have to quit. And Lucille Bull's like, why do you have to quit? Lucille Bowles opened, like, she's like, just bring your kid to work. She opened a daycare that to this day still exists on Paramount because of her. And she, you know, she ran Desilu production for years. And she's the one that greenlit Mission Impossible. She greenlit, what else she greenlit? She did Mission Impossible. She did Star Trek because she knew these were good shows. Someone pitched to her like, hey, what about this show? Because she's a storyteller and she had the innate ability to be like, you know what? Audience is going to really like that. She went, yeah, let's do it. That's what I want to be. Not only do I want to be a writer, I want to be able to be someone who somebody has a great idea come to me and me going, you know what? I think that's a great idea. I'm at a point in my career where I have people that I can take this to, that I can produce, and it'll be your name on it. But wouldn't it be great if I just help foster that? And I think that's I guess that's why I thought of Lucille Bolt before of any other writers. Simply because I understand what it means to be a writer. I want to be what she did, which she was someone who fostered and brought in projects and be able to launch, you know, crazy shows that essentially, you know, change the face of T V. That's what I want. I've grand plans.
0: <laughs> Love it. Almost at the end of these uh, seemingly random questions. What's,
1: you say seemingly as if they're not random questions. Is I know it's, a, it's, it's a,
0: you know. it's a it's a algorithm that you're
1: doing to it's me? It's just
0: a fan. It's, we just thought it sounded good. It's not seemingly at all.
1: I feel like uh, later on I'm going to okay. be arrested.
0: <laughs> I get the it's, wrong yeah. answers answer, to some questions. <laughs> okay. Well, which is funny because it leads us to the next question, which is what's one thing about you or your career that nobody knows?
1: one thing about me or my career that nobody knows. Dun, dun, dun. Let me think about that for a sec. Ah, uh, career-wise, what did I do? Everyone knows I'm a page. There was one moment, this is really funny, not really funny, but in the funny of the, the dark crystal of it all. When I first came to LA and I, I, I didn't know how I was going to break into the business, but I knew I wanted to be in entertainment, there was like literally a week where I became obsessed with the idea of becoming a puppeteer. The Jim Henson studio has, like I, I looked on their website and they actually have like workshop classes and stuff to train you to become a puppeteer. And I thought to myself, well, that sounds balls. So I literally, I think I started like writing the application form and I was gonna do it. And I was like, well, there was like a height requirement. And I feel like there was something like physically that I was just like, I don't know if I can actually do this. Like the idea of like, I love Jim Henson. And as a kid, Muppets were my life. So the idea of working on Dark Crystal now, like, it, it all comes full circle. I didn't, I wanted to be a puppeteer for, like, that week. Realized I, it's just too hard physically. And then now I'm writing a show with puppets in it. So. This is crazy. I think I, it's crazy. It's great. But, yeah. So I wanted to be a puppeteer for, like, a week.
0: Did you get uh, to operate any of the puppets?
1: You mean when I was at the Dark Crystal? Year? Yeah. No. Uh,
0: if you had told no. that story, maybe they would have let you kind of <laughs> fulfill your destiny. So well, I cool. kept
1: telling the director Louis, Louis Leterrier, that they should make a podling. I go, can you please just make a podling that looks like me? Louis was just like not having it. <laughs> he was just like no. I'm like that'd be cool. No, he was not. But we um, what was great about working in the Dark Crystal? Oh, going to the the uh, puppet workshop. Oh my gosh, it was like we had a lot of the production meetings over there, and it's like this um big space in Burbank and that you walk in, and it literally is just your your childhood dream fantasy of seeing puppets everywhere, and how they make them. And I walked in, and it was a production meeting, and you know we were taking a tour of the floor, going, okay, so this is what we have right now. These are the kinks that we're working out. This is the design. And everybody was, you know, you're, you're with not only the writers, but Louis, the director, but you're also with Lisa Henson, and all the puppeteers, and you know, costume wardrobe. I mean, it's like, massive amount of people at these meetings who are walking through these workshops. And everyone's super serious. And then you cut to me just taking selfies of like every pop, <laughs> like, oh my God, there's puppet teeth. Look, you guys, there's popping teeth. Like a tray of popping teeth that they were baking. And I was like, that's so awesome. Like I just was not, I am not very professional when it comes to that stuff, but that, it was great. It was just so magical to watch them make, this is This is just a side thing. This is what this was the first show that I've ever been on. Where usually when you're writing a, a character, and let's say for example, at a coffee shop, and the waitress comes over and goes, "Oh, would you like cream in your coffee?" You know, you just write that line just to mo- get the story move forward. In Dark Crystal, you write a line, "Oh, um, again, using the example, oh, um, do you want some cream with your coffee?" You have the puppeteers come to you and go, "Okay, so these are the color of skins that the waitress is going to have." What kind of beady eyes do you want? Like you suddenly realize, oh crap! They're not auditioning actors; they're creating a character with one line out of nothing. They're just literally like building the eyes, you know, sewing the hair, and they have to make like three of those characters, those puppets, because if one breaks down, you get two extra ones. You have one for close-up. It was crazy to think of that. I think that's why it's taking so long because it's like. I don't even know how to describe how beautiful it is. It's, you see it and it suddenly, you, you don't even have to listen to the stories as much as I want you to listen to the stories. But you even just turn on the volume and you watch, this whole world was built from the ground up. It wasn't like we scouted locations. It legitimately is every leaf, every bug, every thing of water, everything, the creatures, everything was built from a shop. It's, it's a it's magical it's it's gonna be it's gonna be crazy <laughs> very excited
0: based it. on your excitement we mm-hmm. are now so excited for that
1: um, um you guys don't even understand it's so it's so beautiful and then when everyone was like oh it's not cgi no it's all puppets guys it's all puppets and super epic like it's the game of thrones of puppets
0: love that speaking of dark crystal do you want to plug the projects that you can plug at this point? Shout them out. Maybe shout out yourself. Your handle, if you want people to follow you, these kind of you know social media things.
1: What is my handle? Okay, so my handle I think is the Viv eighty six. Is that right on Twitter? Yep, the Viv eighty six. Eighty six is the age I will die for whatever reason. That's what I've decided. Dark Crystal: Age of Resistance will be on Netflix, I believe, August thirtieth. All 13 episodes will be there. Hopefully you guys will binge and then just cry the whole time because it's so beautiful. Lost in Space Season 2, I believe, is coming out later this year, towards the end of this year of 2019. Cowboy Bebop Season 1 will not be on Netflix until 2020. I just like, literally, my uh, the writer's room wrapped a month ago. So they're doing pre-production work right now, and it's very exciting. Again, it's going to be another show where it's like, guys, I guess all of them, all the shows have been on, where everything is just, just the production itself is just going to be crazy. The arts, the craftsmanship of these shows is going to be crazy.
0: Yeah, you're, you're kind of working on some pretty cool shows here. This I is know, like, It's kind of I a know, big deal. very these are, There's no I, I small things here, yeah. Well, thank you for shutting those out. We have one more question. It's the most okay. important question. Harry, will you please hand me the envelope? He's handed me the envelope. I'm now opening the envelope. We can't Mm -hmm. see it because it's podcast. All right. And did you have fun today?
1: I had super fun. Again, like I said, I don't know if you guys remember this. I have a one-year-old. I'm exhausted, so it's nice to talk to adults. Yeah. And it's nice to not have to run around chasing a one-year-old who keeps insisting on putting batteries in his mouth. So this has been great. This has been super fun. And um, and I want to thank you guys for doing this because. I know there are obviously a lot of writers out there, or people who want are storytellers who want to, you know, break into the business. And it's always hard when you hear it's, it's like an, it's very daunting, it's very scary, it's very hard, you know. But it's nice that you have the, that a writer can use this as a resource to get inspiration and, you know, find like you said a roadmap to do what they want to do. Do dream big. Yeah. If anything, I want to just partake. Just everyone, just dream big. It's okay. Just it's okay to have a pie-in-the-sky dream.
0: Well, you don't, don't have to up. thank us because writers are the new rock stars, and this is an absolute pleasure. We're, I
1: don't know that, we, but thank you. <laughs>
0: we are starstruck, and we are so appreciative of your insights and your time. Thank you, Ooh. Vivian. Thank you um, very much, guys. We'll let you go on with the rest of your day. Thanks for making the time. Awesome. Um, and talk hopefully to we'll talk again this soon. You too. And thank you to our listeners. We hope to see you next week. Thank you so much for listening to The Writer Experience. If you enjoyed the episode today, please leave a rating, a review, and a comment on iTunes. You can also check us out on Instagram at Writer Experience and Twitter and Facebook at Writer EXP. The Writer Experience is a Samurai Dinosaur production. Copyright 2019. All rights reserved. Music by Kevin McCleod.